chapter to the Hebrews, for those of you who like a good pun, the coffee shop at Bethel Church at Reading is called Hebrews. But um, Hebrews is very much, I'm not a betting man, but I'm willing to um, put good money on that not many of you are doing daily devotional Bible studies at the moment in the book of Leviticus. Um, In fact, I'm even put even better money on that not many of you have ever done regular um, daily devotional Bible studies in the book of Leviticus. And for those of you who still use a paper Bible, and there are a decreasing number of you as more of you are using electronic devices, the way to find Leviticus is to um, look for the section of your Bible where the gold leaf is still intact and not thumbed at all where the pages are not marked, underlined, or folded over. That is generally a good indication. So why am I talking about Leviticus when I'm preaching from Hebrews? Well, somebody once said about the Bible that the Old Testament and the New Testament can be summed up in this way. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. And Hebrews is very much the New Testament explanation of what Leviticus is all about. So if you get a little bit hung up on or even condemned about the fact that you've got a tattoo or that you're wearing a a garment from M&S that's got mixed fibers and you're worried that we're about to take you out and stone you, um, fear not, Hebrews has the answers. It's not that there are any bad introductions to a book in the Bible, but I think the the introduction to Hebrews is pretty good because in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many, in different and various ways. This is in this last days, he's spoken to us by his son, through whom he created all things and by whom he maintains the universe. He maintains it by the word of his power. He created it by his word, and he sustains it by his word. And I I want to um, read to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, and I want to throw out a couple of things in relation to that. And verse 18 says this, you've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Several years ago, uh, Rachel and I were larking about in my house. My house, well, I say my house, my dad's house. 
was next door but one to where Rachel lived with her family. And during the course of a little bit of just generally messing around, I picked her up and overbalanced. Not a good thing to do. And um, Rachel fell into the edge of the door, which my father was quite concerned about when he got home because he'd only just painted it. But kind of, he was actually concerned for Rachel. But the thing is, uh, head wounds do tend to bleed quite a lot. So I thought, need to get some help here. Bled quite a lot, actually. Um, so went next door but one, where I thought, oh no, I've got to kind of speak to Mr. Williams about this. And because we were on kind of Mr. Williams and kind of a little bit more formal terms at that point. And um, what you have to know about my father-in-law is that he wasn't the most expressive or emotional or demonstrative of people. Um, didn't really do kind of people skills that well. Brilliant engineer, not quite so good. Bra I mean, brain the size of a planet, not great people skills, not very emotionally demonstrative. Now, last week, Richard mentioned that the Britney mic is kaput, and I went and said so he had to use the hand mic, and I, I went to uh, Simon and said, uh, does that mean I can use the tie mic? He said, yeah, that could be an issue as well, because there's a broken bit on, it affects both. I'm like, ah! Which, the hand mic is always a challenge for me, because my sister once told me, she said, if you lost the ability to gesture, you wouldn't be able to talk. And that's not just in a public setting, that's in a private setting. I gesture a lot. And so I had to go to my father-in-law-to-be, because it was just shortly after that, Rachel agreed to marry her. Some might say I knocked some sense into us. Others might say that she was just suffering from confusion at that point and didn't make a good decision. But uh, So I went to explain to Mr. Williams that there was this accident. And he displayed some considerable emotion even before I got the words out. Went white as a sheet. He had an old Woolsey car, which was on axle stands at that point. Like I said, brilliant engineer. Uh, and he tried to get in it to kind of start it after I'd given this news, even though it was on axle stands. And I kind of wondered why he was just so concerned when I was saying Rachel's had an accident. I realized I was gesturing and drip blood was dripping off my hands. And you kind of think, huh? Now, he tried to get him to start a car that was on axle stands and then realized that the alternative was his motorbike, or motorbikes, because he had a few, um, and realized actually you can't probably put a, motor, a, a motorcycle helmet on somebody who's got a head wound. And, got, and so went off to get some help to kind of get Rachel to the hospital. She's fine now, she was okay, just kind of slightly dazed for a few days. Good time to propose. Um, <laughs> look. If you're going to marry out of your league, press home your advantage when you can. Seriously, you know. But um, I condense things for the sake. I'm, there is an element of truth to that. Um, but why am I telling you this story? Well, I'll tell you in a moment. File that one under. Where is he going with this? But this is an interesting passage because. It refers to an old covenant experience which involves, I mean, if you've seen Lord of the Rings with the kind of mountain belching smoke and fire, very dark and very atmospheric, let me tell you, Mount Sinai 
If you were there when the Israelites at the at the old covenant inception where Moses went up the mountain, got the Ten Commandments. That was a fearful sight to behold. Moses disappeared up the mountain and there was thunder, there was lightning, there were trumpets, earthquakes. You would be wondering what on earth is going on. Fearful stuff. And this is the old See, covenant runs a bit like a backbone through the skeleton of scripture, if you like. And there have been a number of covenants. I'm just going to kind of touch on a couple of them because before we get to the crescendo, if you like, I just want to kind of throw some stuff out generally as a little bit of a kind of going along the way. See, initially, God made a covenant well, some say God made a covenant with Adam. God made a covenant with Noah, where he promised that never again would he destroy the earth and set the rainbow in the sky. So every time you see a rainbow, you can know that we have a covenant-keeping God, a God who's good on his word, a God who makes good on his promises, just through seeing a rainbow up in the sky. But then we come to Abram. Abram is an idol worshipper. That's I-D-O-L, idol worshipper, as opposed to I-D-L-E, idol worshipper. He worshipped idols. I mean, I go to some churches and I see some idol worshippers in the congregation. There are some. Yeah, we have the eternal gospel. Gained eternity, lost 50p. But God appeared to this unbelieving man, idol worshiper, and said, leave her, come and follow me. I'll make you the father of many nations. And it says, Abram was 75. I find that an encouragement. I kind of think, I mean, I know some of you are older than me. Some of you are a lot younger than me. And even some of you are a lot younger than me thinking, yeah, but I've got this promise from God. Time is getting on. I've had this from God. And I've not quite seen it yet. And you're saying you don't know whether you're middle-aged or old. Hey, I'm a little, I've got years on you yet. And I've still got promises that I'm waiting on. God called Abram at 75. He saw some stuff. Sometimes I think we're a little bit influenced by youth-centric culture in the church. And hey, young people are part of the church. They're not the church of the future. They're the church now. You're getting on in years a bit? You're part of the church. You're somewhere in between? You're part of the church. And don't write off your promise just because it's a little bit delayed. So Abram follows God. And there's an episode where God makes a covenant with Abram. And it's almost like in two stages, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. And there's one point where God makes this covenant 
with Abram. And the story's a little bit strange. And if you find Leviticus a little bit hard, well, this story kind of, you might think, well, what on earth is going on here? Because God says to Abram, one of the things he says is take a partridge, but it's not like partridge in a pear tree. It's a partridge, a pigeon, three, um, um, was there a turtle dove in there as well, turtle dove? There weren't lords leaping, but there was, there were various animals that, he said basically cut them in half and sacrifice them. And then Abram is there and God causes Abram to go into a trance and a deep sleep and a darkness comes over. And then it talks about there's this fire pot and torch goes in between the uh, parts of the animals. And you think, what on earth is that about? Well, in covenant, often what would happen would be a superior king would make a covenant, a bargain with a vassal, a subservient nation, a subservient king, and they would go through a ceremony like this to keep covenant. And there would be fearful repercussions for the party that broke the covenant. Actually, that would generally be the inferior king. In other words, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. So Abram is party to a covenant with God. God makes a covenant with him where he says, your seed will be a blessing to every nation. Your descendants will be greater than the stars in the sky, the sand on the shore. Through your offspring, through your seed, all nations will be blessed. Now, Paul talks about that, the Apostle Paul talks about that in the New Testament, and he said, he doesn't say offsprings, he says offspring. And sometimes theologians look for that, but Paul, you're playing with grammar a little bit. Nobody says offsprings anyway. And even the thing of seed and seeds, you're kind of playing with it a little bit. But there is something in Christ that is being portrayed in this. Because what happened is that God made a covenant with Abram, but knew that Abram and Abram's descendants would not be able to keep up their end of the bargain. And what God did is he put Abram into a deep sleep and there was a great darkness and God himself walked between the pieces of the animals and said, I am covenanting with you to give you land, to give you and your descendants an inheritance that will never pass away. And I know that fearful curses might fall on the one when the covenant is broken. And I am walking between the animals because I will take that curse for a broken covenant upon myself. Because you do not need to. And that foreshadows a day several hundred years in the future when God himself, in human form, hung in darkness that covered the land and said, I, myself, the seed of Abraham, 
am taking the curse for the broken covenant which you could never fulfill. You could never keep up the terms of that covenant and I am taking upon myself in my body the curse that is on you so that you can go free. And in that way, the Abrahamic covenant came to a fulfillment. But then there was the Mosaic covenant where Moses had this encounter with God. When you think about it, we, we sometimes get a little bit blasé about new covenant, old covenant. We kind of think, it talks about the, we have a new covenant that's founded on better provinces. It's not that the old covenant was somehow... Yeah, it was a bit of a mistake. God didn't quite get it right. It really wasn't really very good. This is the good one. No, it says that was good. The new covenant is better. I mean, you think about it. At the age of 80-odd, you go up the mountain, you have a face-to-face with God, and he gives you some stone tablets that he himself has written on and autographed. That's pretty heavy-duty. And all the while around, you've got thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening, dark clouds, earthquakes. Moses, it doesn't say in the passage, but Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing, Moses is saying, basically, I'm a little bit scared here. Now, if you've ever had to sit outside the headmaster's study, I know none of you will have ever had this experience, it's a little bit daunting because you don't quite know what's going to, what's waiting for you behind the door. But actually, you probably do know what's waiting for you behind the door. And when you're seeing this happening, thunder, lightning, fear. And sometimes we kind of, I think we've got a little bit glib sometimes. We've gone from almighty God to almighty God where God is this benevolent Father Christmas in a woolly jumper who pats us on the head, and we forget sometimes our God is a consuming fire. Handle with care. But amongst all of this, there are promises that are happening. But the promises, whilst good, we have even better ones because the apostle and we don't know who it is who writes the letter to the Hebrews because it's unlikely to be Paul because Paul writes his name all over his letters and this one doesn't have it but he says look just imagine how spectacular it was when the Israelites came to Sinai you haven't come to that you've come to the church of the firstborn You've come to myriads of angels in festal gathering. You have come to church. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a better new covenant. That word new there, it doesn't mean new as opposed to old in the normally in the New Testament, when they're writing about a new covenant, it would be new, as in it's new as opposed to old. 
The word that, that um, the apostle uses here, nearly said Paul, the word that the apostle uses here, it means fresh, up-to-date, vibrant. In the same way that he goes on to speak about you've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because when John, the apostle, had his vision of revelation, it said, I saw a lamb looking like it had been slain. Now, at the point that John had his vision, Jesus had been crucified several years previously. He'd been resurrected several years previously. He'd ascended several years previously. He'd been on the throne, the right hand of God, for many, many years. But when John saw his vision, he said, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. The blood is still fresh. It's powerful. Because it says here, the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Not the blood that spoke past a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood that speaks current and I just wanted to kind of push home this thing on the blood that speaks hence my little anecdote because when I stood before Tony Williams with my hands dripping a little bit kind of it's like ah because when you're confronted with what you soon become aware are is the blood of your child on someone's hands it arouses deep emotions in your heart. And when the writer to the Hebrews is saying here, we have come to the blood, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let me tell you a little bit about Cain and Abel. Many of you will be familiar with the story. Cain and Abel, both offered, they're both sons of Adam and Eve. Cain and Abel both offered sacrifices God wasn't pleased with Cain's sacrifice, but he liked Abel's. I'm not going to go into the reasons why. But effectively, Cain was so annoyed, so consumed with jealousy and hatred for his brother, that he committed the first murder. Now, this was a, a time before police forces, a time before judges, a time before juries, a time before CSI, a time before DNA identification. You might imagine that Cain thought that he'd got away with it. He'd done away his brother. I don't know what his emotions were when he looked down at his brother's corpse on the ground, watching the blood oozing into the soil, there might have been, having watched a bit of CSI, a bit of blood spatter. Cain might have actually had a bit of blood on his clothes, spattered. We don't know what he did with the body. We don't know what he thought he'd have to account for, whether or not he'd tell Adam and Eve that Cain had gone away or, or that Abel had gone away or what, but certainly it wouldn't be like a modern-day murder. But you find that God confronts Cain and he asks him a question. 
Now, the thing is with God, sometimes you have to understand, when he asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. And God fronts up Cain and he says, where's your brother? To which Cain, and you kind of have to wonder about the mentality, says, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, sometimes I see kids who kind of answer adults and the teacher's back is like, <laughs> seriously, this is not going to end well. And you kind of think with Cain, am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> no. I think Cain, this is not going to end well. And God says to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. That's interesting. Humans only hear on a certain frequency. Blood obviously speaks on a different frequency. I was in hospital a couple of years ago. Used to have, I had several samples of blood taken. I got to like phlebotomists. They're very, very good. They I have slightly dodgy veins. It's difficult to get blood out of. No disrespect if you're a doctor or a nurse. I found that most doctors or most nurses, the blood didn't speak, I did. And it was usually, ow, that hurts. Phlebotomists, yeah, blood, fine, got it out, no problem. Ow. But somehow it says that the blood speaks and it cries out. And Hebrews says, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So what word did the blood of Abel speak? What was it crying out? It's crying out vengeance. I've been murdered. I need justice. I need vengeance. Avenge me. It's not a good word. Vengeance isn't a good word if you're on the receiving end, really. Yeah, it might help you to feel good if you're kind of... But if you're on the receiving end, particularly if it's somebody who's a bit larger and more powerful than you, it's a bit intimidating. But the blood of Abel speaks. It tells us something about the value of human life because this is a creature that God made in his image. Part of his glorious creation. somebody's committed murder and God says your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground Cain possibly spattered in blood the blood has seeped into the ground it's a pretty macabre picture But it says, we've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because we've come to Jesus. His blood speaks. Because this isn't just when Jesus died and shed his blood on the cross in darkness alone, suspended naked for all to see between earth and heaven. 
it wasn't that this was a created being. This was the creator of heaven and earth. Who created all things, sustained the universe by the word of his power. Because sometimes we get a bit confused by the Trinity. And sometimes you hear some Christians speak, you almost think we worship three gods. We worship one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Jesus is there being murdered by his creation. He came to that which was his own, and his own received him not. And he's shedding his blood to achieve the end result that God covenanted to give a kingdom to those who follow him, to be joint heirs with his son. And so, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because the blood of Abel says vengeance. You're going to get what you deserve. Jesus holds his hands up before the Father, and the Father sees the blood of his Son, and the blood speaks, and he says, Mercy. Mercy. Don't give them what they deserve. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Mercy. It's a better word than vengeance, isn't it? It's grace. Give them what they don't deserve. Give them blessings. Give them sonship. Give them adoption. Give them the spirit of God in their hearts. Give them a clean slate. Give them justification. It's a good theological word. It means that not only, it means just not that God has kind of overlooked your sin. Oh, let's sweep that under the carpet. It means that the blood of Jesus has washed you clean so that it's like you've never, ever sinned. When I was at university, there was a flat of girls lived in the floor above us. Not in the floor, on the floor above us. One of whom was called Grania. She's Irish. One of my flatmates married her. During the vac- after one vacation, she came back and she said, I've got this for you guys to try. And I said, oh, what's that? She said, it's called pochin. I went, what is that? She said, it's pochin. It's Irish potato whiskey. Let me give you a word of advice. I do like whiskey. Very partial to a nice single malt. But if somebody ever gives you the choice of drinking pochin or drinking petrol, take the petrol. <laughs> Never drunk petrol, but it has to be less lethal than the pochin. They had graffiti on their kitchen wall. Before they moved in, the university sent in cleaners to try and get it on with every proprietary cleaning ingredient that they had at their disposal. Chemicals, you name it, did it ship the graffiti? No. They tried to ship the graffiti. Did they get the graffiti off the wall? No. They put some pochine on the cloth. It wiped it off instantly. Clean wall. You know what? It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've failed. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter what kind of copy book you've blotted. The blood of Jesus will wipe your record better than any pochine on the face of this earth. 
Because when God then looks at your record, the blood speaks innocent. Because Jesus took the curse upon himself, there is no longer any curse left for you. Because the blood of Jesus speaks, and it's still speaking. So when God looks at you, he doesn't look at a sinner saved by grace. We well, does. But so often you know, we, we kind of pray worm prayers, don't we? Oh, God, poor old me, little me, unworthy as I am. Look, you were unworthy, but he has made you worthy because the blood of Jesus speaks. The blood of Jesus says adoption, sonship. God loves you. No weapon formed against you can prevail. No accusation against you from the enemy will prosper. It says you are worthy to come right into the throne of grace and he'll receive you because the blood speaks and it speaks acceptance. Look, do you struggle to pray? I do sometimes. Situations happen, you think, I don't know how to face that. I don't know what I'm going through. And some of you, you live with stuff, even the news we heard this morning, knocks you sideways. But you know what? We have an advocate with the Father, and the blood speaks on our behalf. It says the curse has been lifted, and blessing has come, because you're a child of God. Because we have the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, we're all a bit blood spattered because we've been spattered with the blood of Jesus. But it's not blood that's going to implicate us. It's blood that's going to set us free. There's an old hymn from, uh, by Charles Wesley where it says, He, that's God, breaks the power of cancelled sin. You see, some of you here this morning, you know your sin is cancelled, but it's still got a bit of power over you. But there is a truth that Wesley is writing about here where he says, he breaks the power of cancelled sin, he sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean, his blood availed for me. In a moment, we're going to come to the table where we've got bread and we've got wine. Well, actually, it's juice, but it's. But when Jesus at the supper said, Listen, look, this is my body, it's for you. Often as you do this, remember me. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant, my blood, shed for the remission of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, we often say, actually, this is for people who are in the church family. And that if you're not a believer, actually, this is, this is something for believers. If you're here this morning and you think, do you know what? I'd like to follow Jesus. 
why don't you just come on up to the front, take some bread and take some wine and say, do you know what? I'm in for this. Thank you for making it possible for me to have a relationship with God. You think, Duncan, what about the sinner's prayer? Doesn't it have to be a little bit more complicated than that? Actually, Peter preaching to Cornelius, the audience is speaking in tongues, even as he's even before got to the altar call. I think we can kind of know that God's not too worried about sinner's prayers. But this could be your first time responding to the blood of Jesus, which makes it possible for you to have relationship with God. God is your dad. This lovely bunch of people as your brothers and sisters. But for some of you who've been troubled in your conscience, this tells you that the blood of Jesus speaks. And it's speaking for you right now. And it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because it speaks adoption, it speaks justification, it speaks sanctification, it speaks being a son and daughter of the king, free from guilt, free from accusation, and able to live free of God. Let's just pause for a moment. Father, we want to say thank you so much that you came in the person of Jesus and you shed your blood for us. We want to say thank you. But Lord, would you bring us into a new realization of what that blood speaks to you for us? Just as the Israelites saw a momentous display and were afraid, Lord, let us somehow look again at Jesus and see what he did for us and be stirred to gratitude and amazement at the desire to live for him from here on. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. We've got tables at the front, table, table at the side. Yep, so um, is there another one over there? Sorry, I was saying not that. Ah, yeah, there's another one over there. I feel like an air hostess. <laughs> Table's over there, table over here. Let's remember the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel.